Hello everybody and welcome to episode 10 of Here We Go Again, Israeli Politics. For this exciting 10th episode, we have a guest commentator on for the entire show. Quick updates on Corona, Family Reunification Act, and the President. Bennett meets with the King of Jordan. Terrorist home destroyed. Can we even legally defend ourselves? The courts decide if this is a Jewish state. And tons of economic talks. We end with the fan favorite game show, Knesset Quotes. This is Here We Go Again. Okay, and before we begin our first segment, we'd like to welcome our guest commentator for the week, Yitzi Marcus, who will be joining our podcast. Yitzi, how you doing? I am good. Thanks for having me. Great. Thank you for joining. Okay, Binyam, why don't you start us off with our first topic? Okay, there's a lot to get to this week, everyone. Um, and our first uh, few topics are just going to be updates on a few things we've discussed on previous weeks. Uh, the first topic is going to be um, the Fa- uh, Re- Family Reunification Act, as we discussed in, fem- in previous week. It failed to pass in the Knesset this week and is officially no longer in use. Um, on Tuesday night, the vote went, I believe, until around 6 a.m., the vote finally went down and it failed on a tie vote of 59 to 59. Um, at the last minute, the post did not pass. This means, as we know, that uh, now anyone who wants to become a citizen through this uh, passage has to go and get citizenship from um, Sarat Hapnim, which who is the minister of the interior, who is Ayelet Shaked from Yemina. So, I think that what we see here is there was two things that I understood, which I, I honestly did not understand myself last week, because, you know, I was surprised it didn't pass in the end. You know, I was sure, and I said, I think I mentioned in the previous episodes that I was sure that in the last minute it will pass, but I also thought that it was really a bigger deal than it really ended up being. I thought that the day this law doesn't pass, that's it. You know, 100,000 uh, Palestinians get citizenship and they can automatically go through, and as it was going down, I had a better understanding that it's really not that simple, and in the end, it still needs the the uh, uh, approval approval to to get this act and it can still be done. It doesn't change the complication that this really brought us by it not passing and what it means for the coalition and opposition. As mentioned last week, I think it ended up being really a lose-lose situation for both sides where the coalition showed that they don't have enough power to to hold the, 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 and pass their certain laws, but the opposition itself ended up also losing because, you know, you had Bibi and the Arabs sitting together and voting on, on a, an agreement bill, with, which obviously is not a good look for them as well. Well, it, all right, I want to jump in here for a minute because it's actually, there, there was a lot that happened here, right? So on the one hand, it, the, 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 opposition, is, the opposition is trying to sell the idea that this wasn't a big deal is a big deal and it's not nearly as simple as well it has to go through Shaked and she has to reject them all because when she rejects immediately that causes a appeal to the Supreme Court the courts are going to rule on each one of these and if she rejected them based on racial grounds then it's rejected so this is still chaos to the system there's a reason this was passed unilaterally year over year that's part one part two is it probably shouldn't have been passed on a pure democratic level, this was a bad idea. Okay? You're talking about a classic situation that Israel likes to do where we don't want to pass laws. We're too concerned about the optics. So instead, we had this year-over-year annual renewal of an emergency bill. And it's not an emergency. So is it a bad thing that it failed? For the democracy, probably not. The third most important piece for this discussion, I think, is the politics, right? At the end of the day, the coalition failed here. They failed hard because Bennett completely miscounted his votes here. 
he, his whole idea was he worked so hard to sell to Meretz and to Ram because this was a big deal for him, and he succeeded. He managed to convince both of them to support this bill with the compromises that he put in place. They were fair compromises because on the one hand, they gave a win to Meretz and to Ram. On the other hand, um, they still put the ball in Shaked's court to reject anyone who was problematic from a security standpoint. He got that agreement. They looked then horrible to their base because they ended up voting for this bill. And even after all that, it failed because they were sure that they had Sheikli in their camp. It was a miscalculation, a bad one, and it cost them dearly. It was a, it was a very, very bad night for them. Um, I know I'm talking a long time right now, but I also just want to bring up that one of the reasons this really failed um, was that he decided at the last minute to make it a, um, a faith in government vote, uh, um, essentially meaning that coalition members had to support it if you vote against your coalition members voting against the existence of this government. And that is a very big deal. It forces everyone's hand to say you're not only voting on this bill, you're voting on whether you agree that this government should exist. And that's one of the reasons Shikli ended up voting no, and it kind of forced people into their position. It was a it was a miscalculated play on Ben's part, and it kind of shows his lack of experience in the role. Okay, but what does that mean? So, assuming that they made it a, a non-trust vote, the people that voted against it, if it didn't pass, does that not mean the government falls apart? No, they would need a majority. Um, the vote, the bill didn't pass, but in order to dismantle a government, you need an actual majority of 61 votes. At 59-59, you have a tie, so the bill doesn't become law, but they didn't manage to show a lack of faith in the government and therefore cause it to collapse. So also, I just want to explain to anyone listening that wasn't aware, um, Amichai Shikli, who is a member of parliament from Yemina, but did not join the coalition, was the 60th vote that they were banking on to pass this vote, since he originally stated, and through the night and all the meetings stated, that this vote was too important to let it collapse, and even though he disagreed with the government, he was going to vote for it, up until the point where they had announced that this vote is going to um, represent a lack of faith in the government, then he stated that he doesn't support this government, and therefore he's not going to vote for this uh, vote for law to pass. Right. Now, now Shikli, um, this miscalculation was rough, particularly because um, they could have gotten the votes. I mean, Ram would have given them another one. Ram was saying, we're going to give you the yes votes on the minimum required so that we still can save some face. But if they knew Shikli wasn't going to vote, Ram would have voted yes one more time, and it would have passed. So the miscalculation cost him, just basically cost him the law and everything else. Okay, for our next topic. So we want to give an update as we're going to continue going forward with this um, on the COVID situation in the country right now. Um, the cases continue to rise, albeit steadily, um, and the seriously ill has gone down slightly. And the new restrictions going in is that anyone coming in from a foreign country, even a citizen of Israel, will have to be in quarantine until they get test results. So around 24 hours till after they land in the country, they will have to be quarantined, even if they are vaccinated. Okay, so I think that this is, is to me, I happen to think it's a good decision. I happen to think it should have been the decision originally. I think that from day one, you know, when people are getting on their flights, 
They are on a flight to so people on land. Then the, e- the easiest way to make sure that people don't have it, you know, the problem that you had to the law today is that you come assuming that you are vaccinated, then you don't need to get tested, and that, and that you need to get tested, but you don't need to go into quarantine. And if you end up being positive, then you go into quarantine. But then you spent the first 48 hours going around, especially that many people come in, they come in for events, and they come in for weddings, and different, you know, things where they see a lot of people, usually that happens within the first 24 hours of their landing. So at this point, they're saying it's not that if you land, you need to do two weeks in quarantine, but you do need to do a quarantine until you're tested. And I think that therefore, for example, if you are coming in for a wedding, then that's great. You come in, yes, you'll have to come in a day or two in advance to make sure to land in the country, get your test, you get a negative test, good, then you can go out free and you continue. But it's the best system that I can think of with the least amount of cost to the citizens to be able to make sure that positive people are not walking around in the country. Well, well, it doesn't actually do that, though. I mean, if you get tested the day you landed, they've been telling us from day one, we're now, what, a year and a half, two years into this thing? Um, that it could take three to four days for you to show a positive test. And if you got a negative test before you get on the plane, you're not going to show a positive test the day you got off the plane from what you caught on the plane. And all that completely doesn't bring into account the fact that nobody is getting seriously sick anymore. And at at what point does government not have the right to step in and say, you're limited in your freedom of travel, in your requirements that we make for travel, in staying at home? You, You can't leave your house for 24 hours. That's house arrest. And if we're not seeing anyone actually getting sick beyond just feverish and, you know, sick for a day or two, then at what point is it unjustified? This isn't going away. We're going to have variant after variant after variant after variant. Is this the new lifestyle now? For health reasons, the government allows to dictate when you can and cannot live your home at any given moment when there's no risk to the population. Not so, so simple. I think that- I think that for the, you know, you hit two different points here. And, and I think that when it comes to the level of, of- extremely sick people, uh, I would agree with you, but I think that people are still continuing sick, and I think that's something mentioned in, in previous episodes, which is exactly that, you know, coming of cost of, 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 of closing things down, which have a large cost. I mean, you have to figure out how to do things as smartly as possible, and to us, it's the, the most important thing is just to be able to do things very fast. Have the system prepared, like I said, when they move people to Terminal 1 instead of Terminal 3 in Ben Gurion Airport, you know, it was a very smart move. We're saying we're just giving ourselves the option that if we decide we need to shut things down, we can do it uh, uh, steadily. But when it comes to, to the, the first concept of whether or not you're going to, you know, in the, in the first place you can shut people down, I think that that is, is something that is decided by the by the government that's something that's understood you're not forced to come into the country you're not forced to come into the to these abilities and i think it will be productive because you know you have to be tested and if you're coming to israel within three days before you fly which means that you are tested and by the time you're positive before you will land there actually is a chance the fear is that someone was sick on the plane i don't think that you i'm not testing you when you landed to see if you got it from the plane I'm testing all of the people on the plane to know if they were already sick before. Once you became positive, then that already will affect the other people that were on the plane separately. But I will know that there was someone positive on that plane, which was then spreading. If everyone that lands off that plane is tested negative, that gives you a much higher chance that they were negative before they got on. That only leaves you the window But they had to present the negative test to get before. on the plane. But they that, had to present but, the negative but that gives, wait, that's a whole other complicated question. You're right, but whether or not the test before, but the test before is done abroad and they want to have all the tests done in the country so they have better control of it, that's already a control question. You're right. But also that gives them that extra 24 hours. So if I saw the person the day before I got on the plane, I might, the two days before, then when I tested, I was negative. But once I landed, there might be a higher chance of catching it. It's all a matter of odds. 
of what's the best way to, to prevent it with the least amount of cost. You're not discussing, however, the entire fact that anyone who's coming in, you're not you're not differentiating between someone who's vaccinated, who has around a 95% chance of not getting sick, as opposed to someone who's not vaccinated. Which it was the whole point of trying to push people to get vaccines, because you'll be able to go out and live your life normally. That I agree with. Now, okay. now considering this is policy coming from Mitzrayim Habriyut, who just embarrassed themselves on a global scale, um, it's it's a little hard to trust. I mean, they published new stats saying that we're only 64% effective against the variant. The whole world picked up this story. Literally every major media cycle from Fox News to BBC picked up this Israeli study that shows the vaccine's only 64% effective. And then they were like, oh, well, that study didn't actually have any data, and it's not actually true. Um, but I'm glad we did it anyway. <laughs> Why are we not surprised? Okay. okay, let's move on to our next topic. Continue to update um, you with all of the information on the on COVID uh, updates in the country on the following weeks. So, on to our next topic is going to be just a small update. We discussed in previous episodes the presidential election in Israel, that Yitzhak Buzhi Herzog won the presidential election. Um, this Wednesday, he was sworn in um, in the Knesset in front of everyone. Um, and he invited his opponent, Miriam Peretz, as his guest of honor to be there. She came, it was actually a very nice, very civil and bipartisan event that was supposed to be an apolitical event and actually went rather nicely. Agreed. I think that in it brought, uh, you know, as we mentioned, the entire elections process was pretty peaceful and pretty clear. You know, each one was giving each other the respect that they deserved. And I think that it ended on a nice note also. It was a pretty nice uh, event, respectful. They were there. They sang the songs. They did the process, and he was sworn in. It, it, it does, on the one one point, just add on and show in the uh, kind of a not-so-exciting not part of the president in the first place, but um, uh, in, in, in Israel, of course. But it was a very respectful event that went very smoothly. And next topic. So now we finally get back to politics. Um, so a few interesting stories came out this week. One of them was that Bennett met um, recently with, for the first time in years, as the Prime Minister of Israel. He met with the King of Jordan in Uman. Um, this was obviously a secret meeting, although we do have a cold peace with uh, Jordan. Um, he met with him to discuss regional issues and part of security um, issues in the area. So it ended up that they really met and... Well, you know, the, we don't know all the details of, uh, of, of the meeting, but we do know that the official announcement they brought together is that they're opening a clean slate, a new page to begin the relationship together, um, which is something that, that potentially could be a big deal and really could give us a, a good opportunities for the future. But, you know, it's really important to think that I think that it falls into that same category of many things and may probably discuss it in the, continuing in the episode as well, but, you know, in the different relationships between uh, President Biden and, and, and Bennett and the other people that, you know, in the end, it's almost like it's almost like there's a global goal to not have this government fall apart and a global goal to not have BB go back into power. So even our enemies are kind of holding ground to try to help Bennett stay in power and not have BB take over. And this is another example, in my opinion, in which you're seeing here that it might have real honest positivity there. It might just be a simple, you know, uh, um, hatred that was between the the King of Jordan and BB, and therefore now that he's gone, he's interested in making a new page. Maybe it's also possible that he is just playing that same game of saying it's important for this government to stand strong. So I'm going to give the support that I need right now, and once it moves on, then will be the right time to give the issues to come back again. Same thing I feel that is happening with the American government right now. Well, the support wasn't made public. 
I mean, Bennett supposedly made it public. Unclear who made the announcement that this meeting took place. But there were people that came out with stories immediately after that. The, the publicizing of the event was damaging to the King of Jordan, and he was annoyed about it. So it's not like they came, they did like a handshake that was a photo op. Um, they met. I think it's not uncommon for them to meet, especially given the fact that Lebanon is literally collapsing in on itself, and there's about to be a whole country that becomes no man's land because the state went bankrupt, and it's horrible. And we both border that state. So the fact that they're talking makes a lot of sense. Are they supposed to publicly talk? Probably not. So I think we should also pay attention here to the fact that the King of Jordan and his the entire monarchy of Jordan has been in a very precarious state for a few decades at this point. Um, the Jordan, the Jordanian people, a large amount of them are Palestinians, um, and they go back and forth all the time. And the monarchy of Jordan has been afraid for years that they're going to be deposed by the people, by the Palestinians, and they always have to create a very precarious balance of, we can't risk a war with Israel, but we can't be seen to be supporting Israel, being happy with Israel, because we're just going to get kicked out of power. And I think that's why he may not have been happy with this, but even agreeing to meet with the chance that it might have been publicized is a precedent that shows a difference, because even in recent years, we've seen they've been very afraid of the Palestinians in their country. For our next topic... So a terrorist home, uh, a, a terrorist murderer's home was destroyed this week, um, and as a result, the American em- uh, consulate or embassy put out a, um, a notice saying that they were not happy with this and they don't like unilateral decisions like this that um, hurt people that were not related to an attack um, and that can further incite the area. Um, and another piece of information is that the, in- that the replacement prime minister and Foreign Affairs Minister uh, Yair Lapid was not aware of the destruction of the home prior to the event taking place. Okay, so I think that there's some things in the background that we really have to um, understand here is, first of all, you know, the procedure of uh, destroying homes of terrorists is something that was decided in the past by the government. It's one of the ways that we deter terrorism and you know and we try to give them the ending that terrorist understands that if he comes and he ends up doing his uh, you know um, murdering someone and acting in terror, then therefore his family's home the home that he lives in will be destroyed. Um, and there's been a lot of controversy about it, but you know on the one hand the controversy was really that you're destroy you know usually these terrorists, are either obviously they're either in jail or they are killed after the act um, in the act and you're ending up destroying the home of the people in his family that are still alive and that's the, the controversial part on the other hand you're discussing a that many many times you see that these families are were supporting it and had knowledge of this uh, prior to the event happening and second of all it has been proven by the uh, security council in Israel that this really does deter um, the um, terror and actually has brought multiple situations where fathers and mothers would call up the Israeli police to come and announce and saying our son has been missing for many hours and we fear that he's going to do a terrorist attack please stop him so our home is not destroyed which ends up being really the goal of this uh, move at once so this is a procedure that has been accepted and now really um, happened and this was destroyed and as a result, the American, uh, you know, as you mentioned, came in and, and went out against him saying that you should not be destroying homes of families um, as a result of a, a, a single man's action. His family should not have his house, his house destroyed. And then 
the interest, the the answer of, Pre, of Prime Minister Bennett was back to them by by his people came and said was we highly respect the uh, American government's opinion and we appreciate their support. Although security decisions are a an internal decision that uh, that will be made that has been made and will continue to be made by internal decisions. And I think that was a very very powerful answer, especially by him, where it was very straightforward and what he didn't wait a long time. He made it very clear: these are security decisions. Do not get involved in them. And I think my one last point to that is I think that this is another chicken and egg situation where once you stand strong at the start and you make it a precedent that we make security decisions, even if it will cost you and you don't know for a second how much the American government will try to make a bigger deal. But once you do it early on, you hold strong on your decisions that you made. That is something that will that will push forward and I think will be much stronger in the future. And my one last point is, and then I want to hear you to your opinion on this, is that when it comes to Yair Lapid, you know, that was not aware of this happening. It's important to say that, you know, on the one hand, they, he formed this government together with Bennett and that was something that, and that's why they are partners. With that, it is agreed upon within their agreement that these decisions are decisions that are made solely by the Prime Minister and the Minister of Defense, Benny Gantz. And from a uh, protocol perspective, Yair Lapid did not need to know about this, and actually some would say it's good he did not know about this because part of running a smart government is knowing to play the parts, where Yair Lapid himself was able to come and say, you know what, yeah, I was also against it, I thought it wasn't a good idea, but my government has the right to make their decisions and not everything has to be unilaterally decide. You don't need all 61 members to vote for one solid thing to agree on everything. This is part of each one doing their position and running the, the government as best as possible. Okay, so there's a few things here, right? The first is, is I guess, the actual event, right? The Supreme Court has ruled on this in Israel many times. The very left-wing Supreme Court has ruled time and again that the destruction of houses is allowed. Um, that's just A. B, Bennett's response. Bennett's response was appropriate. Appropriate to tell Biden that it's really none of his concern. Could have been a little harsher. It... The, the truth is that it is extremely audacious of the Biden government to even mention anything on this. This is a practice that's been going on for a very long time. The Biden administration has always known about it. Um, and it's an internal security matter that really has nothing to do with anyone externally. Um, the removal of the incentive for committing terror is crucial. Israel's failed time and again to figure out how to do that. This is the first time they found a way that's actually been effective. Because at the end of the day, the terrorist expects to die. They do it because money is paid to their families. The family is not an innocent bystander. When it comes to terror, the family is the beneficiary of the terror. So taking away the incentive of the individual to commit terror is a crucial part of our national security. Finally, there's Lapid. Lapid, there was no reason for him to know. He's the foreign minister. That's not a security position. Um, Lapid himself has voiced time and again that he is not a second prime minister like Gantz tried to be in the previous government. There's one prime minister. It is Bennett. And they've all agreed to do their jobs. That's the point of this new government. That's why Lapid didn't make a big stink about not knowing about this. It wasn't his job to know. His job is a different one. He's dealing with that. He's dealing with the fallout from the event now that the Biden administration stepped in. That's his role. But security concerns are none of his business at this stage of the government. Okay, so but what do you think about, you know... A family that really has ends up not having to do with the terrorists. Okay, I go there and he really is no. They were not supportive of it. They didn't know what was happening, and now you're destroying their home. They might be an innocent bystander. They might not. If you can prove to me that they were aware, then of course they should be punished for it. But if they really had no idea 
and did not support this happening, why would their homes be punished? Just like in this country, if someone made an act and stole from somebody, if you had no idea and didn't support it, you should not be responsible for that. Okay, but it's not, it's not that simple, right? Because it's not like uh, an act of terror occurs and the next day Israel just drops a bomb in this guy's house. There's a legal process that happens here. It takes a few months. The Howe family has the right to appeal to the Supreme Court. In this case, they actually did. The Supreme Court rejected them. They tried to argue that they had nothing to do with it, that he doesn't live in the house that often. Um, they were rejected because it is evaluated. The situation is evaluated. Is the family benefiting from the current situation? Are they going to get paid out um, by Iran, um, by Qatar and money? for the terror that was taking place, because you have to remember that that's the incentive of the terrorist. The terrorist thinks he's going to die. The terrorist is doing this knowing that his family is going to be cared for. So by removing that incentive, by removing the whole situation of your family is not going to be cared for, your family is going to suffer, you're disincentivizing terror, which is the goal. The courts have ruled on it. It's government policy, and nobody external has any right to weigh in here whatsoever. We should also pay attention uh, to the detail here that these courts are left-wing courts, as in the Supreme Court, as we'll discuss in a minute, is not a right-wing court at all. This is a court that that's um, not pro um, the right, has not always been the pro the army here, and yet they consistently have allowed this, and depending on the scenario, in in each case. Okay, so let's move now, on as to a next point, oh, as a, Just one on. final point here to bring back um, what you mentioned earlier, Yonatan. Um, Bennett actually holds way more power in the current situation than previous prime ministers, particularly Netanyahu did, because while he's, a, he's not as strong a leader on the global stage, the incentive to keep him in power is so strong by the more left-wing bodies in global government. Biden is, has vocally said that they're not going to challenge the Bennett government in any ways in order to not accidentally topple it. So Bennett holds all the power here to basically tell Biden, shove off or Bibi's going to come back. So he kind of gets to play strong arm. Which is like, as we mentioned last week, with the settlement of Ivetal, the deal that was reached, that only a government like this could have reached that agreement without American intervention, without American, a, a left-wing government in America trying to intervene because that they don't want to drop this, make this government collapse. It's a very good point. Exactly. Okay. And now for our next topic. <laughs> yeah. Um, our next topic is a old and new topic. Um, which is a base law, as we mentioned in the past, it states that the um, country will be a Jewish and democratic country. Um, a very distinct difference. We Maybe in future episodes we'll delve into the real difference that that makes. Um, and it finally went up to the Supreme Court uh, this week. And the Supreme Court did not uh, throw down Chokaleom even though they had stated on numerous occasions that they might, and that they even believed that they had the right to get rid of a base law. Um, and there was one, it was a 8 to 1, I believe, uh, vote. Um, and there was one uh, judge, the Judge Solberg, who uh, voted against uh, um, the decision to not throw it out for the simple reason that he believed that um, they had no right to adjudicate this issue at all, um, before there would be a f finalized constitution in play. Okay, so I think that it it's, gets overly complicated in that, you know. You, uh, at a first glance, when I heard this, I'm like, oh, wonderful, you know, they said they're not nullifying the law, they, they, they allowed it to pass, then it's great, you know, they're supporting our move. But it's not. Even in this answer that they give, you can see their deep misunderstanding of their position. And, or, or their opinion on their position. Because in their opinion, they, the, the government tried to pass a law, 
which is a base law. Then they debated on it. They went through it and they decided to say, we'll allow it. We're affirming this law as officially can be put into the books because we said that it's okay. That already within itself is a deep, deep issue that they are allowing this, uh, that they believe that that is their position to sit there and make this decision when this law in the first place should be decided by the lawmakers that were elected and it's elected officials to make this decision that passed this law and should not have even been debated. Well, that, that was Solberg's opinion. That's essentially exactly what he wrote. He said that the, 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 the pure idea of us having this discussion is, is us trying to emulate essentially the American Supreme Court and say we have the right to sit here and rule on whether a constitutional amendment, this Chok Yisod, um, is, is illegal based on previous constitutional issues. He said you can't do that when there's no actual constitution that was formed. We can't be this middle ground body, therefore we don't have any authority to actually rule on this. And he's 100% right. But this isn't news. You guys covered this a few episodes back when you talked about the Supreme Court and its structure and the problematic, problematic way it behaves. The Supreme Court has no check on it in the state of Israel. There's no limitation to their authorities, their powers, what's going on. Um, and therefore, they thought it was their right to sit here and debate it. And the fact that they ended up not striking it down isn't really relevant because it's a law that doesn't actually mean anything on a practical level. It just doesn't sound good to people on the more left-wing side of the aisle. Which is what enhances the reason that they should not have debated it in the first place, because when if it had the whole concept would theoretically be that if there are practical implications that can then take away the rights of individuals from other base laws, then they're responsible to defend it. But if there are no practical implications, it, in even in the opinion of those that say that they should debate it, this law should not have been debated. So I want to bring um, a few of the actual opinions by the judges. Um, for example, the uh, head of the Supreme Court, uh, the Esther uh, Chayut, uh, stated that whatever the reasoning why they were allowed to debate this, they were saying um, that they screwed up, okay, that the, the Knesset screwed up by the fact that they don't deal with things. The Knesset um, never functions as a body that's supposed to create a constitution. They don't do any of these things. Therefore, in this absence of power, in this vacuum, um, then they feel that they could try and do this. Also, um, the last uh, judge that I want to bring up is his name is Shafit Amit. Um, that he stated that this actually bothered me because I felt like his statement in, in, in the writing was a dangerous precedent. He stated that um, the reason he's not throwing it down, even though the law might have disparate effects in the future, it might itself be illegal. The law has been in place for a while now, and we haven't seen any bad effects take place. Therefore, it doesn't deserve to be thrown out. Which, just because something doesn't hasn't done anything bad, doesn't mean it won't do anything bad. Which I think was just a bad statement from a Supreme Court justice to try to make. And our next topic... Um, Miri Regev, who is a member of the Likud, she was even supported by the Libertarians in the Likud uh, party, um, may be running for the head of the Unions of Israel, uh, one of the more evil bodies in this country. This is courtesy of Channel 13 News. Um, she may be running for the head of the Histadrut, which is all, the head of all the unions in Israel. She will be making this decision in a few more months. Uh, it's it's a pretty telling story, right? Um, first of all, I think the words libertarians and Likud are oxymoronic. Um, I don't think it makes sense to kind of say them in the same sentence. Um, Miri Regev is one of the leading members of the Likud party. Um, 
she quote unquote pushed for um, all right wing economic um, issues, but really all she did was promote more and more populist left wing agendas like the Likud has a tendency to do. The fact that Maria Regev seeing that she's no longer a minister is looking for her next job and the idea of her next job being to head up the unions, which goes as far left as you could go, speaks to the fact that the Likud has not been a right wing party for a very, very, very long time, even though they tend to mark everyone who is not them as left. Um, she recently just enacted this bill forcing every young parent, um, any parent who has a kid under the age of four, to install a very expensive addition to their car um, without thinking through the regulation at all. Again, another example of just far left-wing populist things from the house of Miri Regev. Um, being the head of Histadrut exactly where she belongs. It's where all of the liquid belongs, and hopefully we won't have to deal with them again for a very long time. So it's important to note here that the actual, who the head of the Histadrut usually are, they're usually prominent members of the Labor Party, i.e. super left, as we mentioned. They well, to, to be fair, just on, on one thing, first of all, the Labor Party is not super left. They are the left party of the country. They are not super left. There are way much more left-wing party than them when it comes to security issues. I don't think it's fair to call the Labor Party super On economics. Left. Okay, so as as the spectrum of the country, they are left. Well, Israel, even Israel has left. a definition. Israel has a definition issue on right and left, and it's very uh, hard to but, classify. But from the general right? definition, the Haredim are extremely left-wing, but they're considered the right-wing bloc. Right. And the one last point I'll also make is that we do have to to be uh, uh, open and clear here that this is not an official statement that was given by Regev or any of her people. This is uh, something that was picked up by the news. Is it most probably leaked purposely to see the reactions? Yes, but it's also, to be fair, it has not been officially announced. And for our next topic... Um, we want to discuss uh, the case of Aryeh Schiff. Um, Aryeh Schiff was just convicted of negligent homicide. Um, after shooting a man who was attempting to steal his vehicle. Now, a little background to this story. This happened a few months ago. Um, someone, this is down south um, in part of the areas which kind of became like the Wild West. There's no governance there. There's gangs. It's r running rampant there. And um, he some, he found, came out to see someone try, attempting to steal his vehicle. And he shot and killed the man who was attempting to steal his vehicle. Um, he has just been convicted of uh, mur of negligent homicide, and it's uh, the judge is currently, will give sentencing in a few weeks. Um, the His defense lawyer is attempting to get him community service instead of years in jail. I have serious issues with this case because this is just a basic case of self-defense and defense of property. This is a guy trying to just defend his own things, especially in a place where the police are, have lost all ability control. This is a place where in the past we've seen soldiers told to not go home on uniform because it's a danger to them. There's some serious issues in these in these neighborhoods and in between these cities. And I believe a man attempt, just attempting to protect himself and his property. No one's even debating that he wasn't attempting to stop the man from stealing his vehicle. That he protected himself and, and killed... And yes, he killed someone. But just because he killed someone who was attempting to steal his things doesn't mean he should serve time in jail. In fact, it's even commendable. He protected himself. It's a right to self-defense. Okay, so I have... There are two main issues with, with I believe in what you just said. Is there's The first question you have is about the, the, the sovereignty there and the fact that the government is not controlling anything and that there's people have to be protection to defend themselves. That is a catastrophe and that is something that I, we've mentioned before and has to be dealt with and is, and is a really grave issue. 
Now, and I will say that as a result of that, I believe that then the judges should know to understand that the country's not doing their job to defend the people, therefore they are there to defend themselves. That is an issue which I agree with and has to be dealt with by the country. Although, I will come and say that, you know, your statement, the fact that he went to, to defend himself, it, that's just not the situation. I'm very sorry, and, and, and I, I think that there's a question of law here. The video is very clear. The man leaves his house. The guy was already in his car, driving away with the man's vehicle. He runs up to the window and shoots him through the window. Okay, the guy was nowhere near him, never attempted to break into his house. Defending his property. Okay, so then this is a question. So first of all, we have to make it clear the defense was solely defense on property. Okay, and there wasn't even defense on, you know, he ran into my backyard, I saw him in my backyard, I and he was trying to steal something, I wasn't sure if he's going to break into my house. The man was driving away with the vehicle granted that he stole and running away. Okay, now, the, to the question of defending property, that's a legal question. This is not, you know, I like to a lot of times jump out and, you know, attack the judges for their decisions to go through. I, you know what? I personally don't know the law well enough. But I do believe that in Israel, different than in different states in America, there is not a clear law saying defense of property, it does not give you the legal right and does not count as self-defense on yourself. And that is, and, and if that is the law and the law has to be passed, therefore this man is guilty. Now, I will end up in saying that when you combine the two points I made, and you combine the fact that there's no defense there and everything is very, very scary and it's a wild west there, to the fact that the man was genuinely trying to defend and did not have a goal to kill this person, that wasn't the goal, he was trying to stop his property from being stolen, then as a judge, I would sit there and say, he is guilty by law for what he did. I would not count it as reckless homicide. I would say he was guilty for other things and I would try to play together and I would downplay the punishment, as I said, to maybe different service. As much as I support the man personally, and I think that the law should be that defense of property should count as your complete right and you should be allowed to shoot any man that endangers your property or your land, until that law is not made, I do not have issues with the fact that the that the um, judges decided to rule against him. So, right, there's a few separate questions here, and I think that's important. I think, Jonathan, you kind of made this point pretty well, that the law and the moral question are two separate things. On a moral level, I think generally we agree. If someone's coming and trying to rob you stuff, you have the right to protect your stuff, at least on the conservative side of things. The law in Israel just isn't that. Like you're, I think that's what you're trying to say here, right? The law in Israel does not give you the right to protect your um, property with lethal force, period. This has actually been tried many, many times. This isn't a new story. With people that broke happened. into your homes and were actually in your homes. And if you were not able to prove that they were endangering you, if you ran yeah. downstairs and shot them as they were leaving from your house, you, you're in trouble. Now, now, gener generally, in your home, the courts seem tend to be a little more lenient um, just because they the argument is you have a few places from which you can escape the situation and therefore you were in... Um, you felt like you were in mortal danger, but if you if they could show that you had the ability to run away and instead you chose to defend Then it's not considered self-defense. Israel's laws on this are very 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 problematic um, But as long as the laws are the laws I would argue back against the idea that it's the judge's job to take into account the fact that there is no governance um, Down there. It's really not the law's concern. The law doesn't make policy Government's failure is government's failure. Elect new people. Until then, the law allows you to behave this way and doesn't allow you to behave that way, and that's the end of that story. But it definitely can be weighing in in the punishment. That's why we give the judge the ability to make that decision. Not whether he's guilty or no. not. 
No, I would argue not. Only to the extent in which the judge feels that this person actually felt like he wasn't safe. Well, no, because uh, and I, I don't want to get in too in-depth about this as our episode is, is running long, and I also don't want to compare one situation to the other because each one has their delicate issue, but I feel that there are some similarities to, like, the terrible situations that we've had both in America and Israel where, you know, people have been, unfortunately, you know, raped or, 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 or assaulted and then ended up, you know, or, or the, the father of the person who was raped or the person who raped himself, it actually, Joseph's Law, I think it happened a couple months ago, ended up, you know, running back and, and murdering the person who raped them. Now, again, I think that it's, it's obviously very, very different and in each of horribles separately, but I think that it's a similar situation where as a judge, if a person who was raped went and murdered the person who raped him, from a legal perspective, sorry, you are guilty. You know, this is not something you can play around with. You do not have the right to take your law to hand. With that, as a judge, the punishment that I would give that person, again, taking out the this in this situation, it's whether or not he's dangerous to others in the future, but I'm saying I as a judge can take into consideration the situation, the emotional situation the person was in understand, you are guilty of murder, but let's see how we can lower your sentence because it ended up being that you already hurt you did this act to someone who actively hurt hurt you, and that is something that could be put into consideration when I, punishing. I, I don't think I don't think revenge killings are any less punishable than other killings. Now, there is first degree, second degree, was it a premeditated murder? That all goes into account. But if someone as your example, um, their daughter, God forbid, was was raped, and they plan out a whole murder of the rapists. No, that person doesn't get a lighter sentence than any other premeditated murder. It's a premeditated murder. Okay. So I just want to state that uh, the re- that part of the reasoning that he was convicted was that he had a way to deal with it without killing him. That the shot, that shooting at him, the only possible. Um, outcome was that the guy would have died and that's why it's negligent that he should have shot at the car or something and not at directly at his uh, upper body okay and now we move on to our economic segment the dumbest economics of the week well, decisions of the week well yeah but i'm not sure how dumb they are so we're playing with it that's Go true on. okay the first one is going to be a, na- a national plan for mitigating regulation presented by bennett uh, Prime Minister Bennett. Uh, we'll run through a few of the points. Maybe in a future episode, we'll go into depth on the decision if it takes effect. Um, just a few of the point is going to be uh, lowering the amount of actual bureaucracy and regulation on opening a business or on bringing things in. Um, and you're going to have any all regulators in the country from different bodies of government will have to be in accordance on their rules. You won't have to have different bodies having different rules. Um, there's going to be new training for regulators that their job is going to be not to have a, um, more regulation to make it as easy as humanly possible for citizens to do actions that they want. And there's going to be in the law um, stipulating how regulators are going to work and how um, the body that oversees the regulators and making sure that any new regulation doesn't hurt the citizen too much is going to function. Um, and they're also going to try to minimize the um, the uh, the the effects of regulation on the citizen, and they're going to try to advance uh, uh, childbearing, um, making uh, businesses uh, have more uh, insurance for success, and building competition, and hopefully taking down the price of living in Israel. Okay, so you know it starts off with the fact that he, he begins saying that Israel is one of the worst worst countries when it comes to regulation. Okay, we want to have the highest level of regulation out of actually almost every single country, you know, worse than Germany, Australia, Britain, uh, United States, uh, uh, you know, and, and many more. 
and and this directly affects the ability to run a business as as us uh, uh, hosts of this podcast you know if you want to run a business in this country it's a catastrophe you know and it's very very hard and, and this is something that he that he is uh, trying to attack I think the first thing I'm going to say really short is just you know it's good that he's trying and he's actually trying to deal with this early on which is impressive you know he always talks about economics and he talks about lowering relations I know it's something he's interested in but I'm impressed that with all the complications of this government and all the things he has to deal with he's hitting this pretty early on to go and, and think granted he threw this out right after the 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 fallout of the of the law so it was also a smart timing by him to try to change the subject into this topic but I think that it is a good topic to discuss if he's able to succeed in 30% of the things that he's saying here I'll be very happy so I also want to just actually give some facts that he brought up for example Israel is not just be a, um, in a bad position we've been backsliding for example in 2010 Israel was the 29th place like the hardest place in the world to uh, 29th in easiest place in the world to attempt to open a business and to get it to work. This is by the World Bank. Um, and now into 2019, 10, uh, um, it was nine years later, we moved from 29th to, to 35th place, making it even more difficult to attempt to open a business in Israel with regulations. So the goal is very good. And even some of the things he proposed here are really good, right? If we kind of look over what the general plan is, um, they're basically saying any existing regulation has to defend itself. There's going to be a committee that they have to defend the existence of the regulation for or have the regulation be taken away. Um, one of the most important pieces here is, is reforming how, how business is open. Essentially, you won't, you'll just ha you won't have to wait for approvals and licensing. You can just open a business that follows the rules and get punished if it doesn't follow the rules as opposed to having to go through all these hoops even to get the business started in the first place. Um, other things are disincentivizing um, regulation. So the regulatory there's a there's a disincentive for the regulator to have regulations every time they have them, making it the the incentive being to remove them. The downside of this, which may or may not be a necessity, but it is what it is, is that in classic government form, the main way in which this is going to be done is by forming a new governmental body, which really just adds another level of bureaucracy. So well, we're gonna no. have the well, to be fair, this regulation. government body is meant to replace other ungoverned bodies that exist. It's not new Meant one, it's one that's in place. Yeah, I'm waiting to I'll see people who I'll believe fired. it when government employees are fired. <laughs> exactly. Um, that is not an easy thing to do. Basically, it'll be a new governing body over all regulations. All regulations are supposed to be centered through them. Now, this, in its core, is a good idea because regulations tend to contradict each other in Israel. Bodies don't talk to each other. You have to go through the same variation of regulation for four different... Um, um, different Bodies regulators there. and it, it gets out of control so having one body basically make sure that you don't have tripling up of the same regulation um that regulations make sense with one another is a good idea but forming a new government body is generally doesn't end well so i'll be interested to see in the future if this law actually passes if any of you are interested in us uh, doing a in detail episode about this entire plan it was an hour press conference that we made into like three minutes you're welcome to send in to us well, it is a horacha, not a law. Um, so they don't have to pass a 61 majority leader. They don't have to get the Knesset to approve things. The Memshala approves the action. It's an executive action. Yeah, that's true. A, but part of, part of the plan is a few laws that they would like to pass on the books. But again, if you would like us to uh, discuss this in detail in the future, you're welcome to send in to us and we'll happily do it. A minister of finance, Lieberman, has um, instituted a new practice that he would like to 
remove all funding um, and subsidies from anyone uh, attempting to send their children to kindergarten who is not working. There are a few stipulations in the law, obviously, for um, anyone who's a student or um, attempted or recently laid off. It's not somebody who's just lost his job and also is no longer receiving funding, who is someone who is clearly not working. Now, this adversely affects mainly to the Haredi community. This plan um, is really just a plan to attempt to get the Haredi community to go out into the workforce um, and to force them to um, integrate into societies to no longer be just taking from the government pocket but to hopefully give back to. That is the main plan from the Lieberman standpoint. So the the, the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox community of Israel is something that comes up in topics often time and time again uh, uh, for various reasons when it comes to uh, uh, going to, you know, serving in the army or when it comes to the taxes that they are taking and, and paying less of. They do pay, but less of than others as they have less people in the workforce. And this uh, comes in time and time again. Um, when it comes to this, we do have to realize one thing before, you know, originally kindergartens were not free in the country in general. And the reason for passing law, the problem was that people were that wanted to go work and were working did not have the ability to go to work because they did not have enough money to um, um, to support them. And, you know, they did not have money to go to work and pay for these uh, preschools to be run. And, and they did not have these, these options. It is important to specify we're talking about, I believe, the age of uh, uh, three to, uh, um, I believe it was three to five. I don't remember exactly the age because there's a certain age that it already it's, it's has. Preschools, it's preschools, not kindergarten. Right, so thank you for the correction. So it's preschool age that was added on so people can go back to work, but it was the thing. Now again, so that was the reason the law was passed. So technically speaking, the idea of saying, look, this you know, uh, uh, offering that the country is giving to be able to allow them to be able to go to work, uh, to be able to, to, to work and therefore the country will pay for your, for your preschool, you know, makes sense and it's a great idea. And the idea of saying, look, if you're anyway sitting at home and not working, then why would you get this opportunity? Uh, it's on the one hand. On the other hand, as I mentioned, it's important to you know that Lieberman in general is known to be someone who has in the past been very against the ultra-Orthodox community in the country, and they are the people that will be affected the most by this, as they are the population that sends them to these preschools and, and do not work. And it will be complicated to understand what are the ramifications of it. So... A miscalculation, a, a misrepresentation here, I guess. Don't forget the government can't give anything. Government doesn't have anything. The government can take from one person and give to another. The argument being that if someone chooses to not make money and then says, I can't afford my childcare, that doesn't mean you get to take someone else's money to pay for your childcare. It's that simple. There's really no debate to be had here. If you do not feel like working, the government does not subsidize your life. End of story. Now, so the fact that it comes from a man who has very publicly despised a large portion of the population who, for arguably for the reason that they willingly engage in this practice daily and, and have squoze the government um, for years for funds for this exact action, makes it a little distasteful, I guess, because it feels like a direct attack on the religious communities from a government that is no longer right-wing, quote-unquote. Um, but on a pure policy level, it's inexcusable that they were being subsidized. Um, they definitely should not be subsidized. And I, I don't really even care what the outcome and fallout for their organi for their society is. It's my money. Stop taking it from me. So I, I have a bit of an issue with what you're saying. And I think that, you know, 
it, it is possible to agree with you. Like, it's possible to say, that, you know what, this should not be something that's funded by the government. And I agree with you. It's, this is not something that should be agreed that we as a population are funding for each other to give the, the, this preschool. But the answer to that could be, and this is a policy question that can be done assuming that the government would decide that, that we're coming and saying, we are the country of the Jewish people, and the Jewish people should be learning Torah, and that's one of our values as people, and therefore, as a country, we are all agreeing, even if you don't specifically support learning Torah, the idea would be that if it's a value that we have, we will all pull in our money. Obviously, you're talking about a very small percentage, but it's still everyone's money. You're putting money to fund the learning of Torah. Again, I'm not saying that is my opinion, and I'm not saying that that is correct. I'm saying that it is an opinion that can be given that in this situation this is something that we should all be supporting. And, and, and the one thing I'll add to that is that, you know, the reason that you could excuse this if you, even if you were targeting the, the ultra-Orthodox community is that if you look at the statistics in the years to come, we see that the, when this law was passed and it was given to them their ability to not have to go to work, as in they could sit at home and get free preschool, it lowered down by a large percentage of the workforce. And we believe that this will have a direct effect in giving, it's not just gonna make things harder, it will directly either cause or help, you know, both of those things happening, the ultra-Orthodox community go into the workforce. So, I would disagree with the whole first half of what you just said, um, because frankly speaking, the government is not here to decide what is good or not good or for the morals or religious values of the state. The government's here to produce. Um, and if the, the government's going to spend money, that money needs to be spent in a way that produces for the country, that makes the country a better place to live. Faith-based decisions are not that. Whether someone is or is not learning Torah or that is or is not a value is really none of government's concern. That is a country, that is a local concern. So if the city of Efrat would like to say that we as a city, as a local community, would like to fund the Baklanim in our Kolel, fine, that's a local decision. But as long as people are forced to live here, if you live in a country, you're not living here by choice. Us expats from America are, but most people born here are not. It's their only state. Then you don't have the right to take my money by force and apply it to what you believe to be values, especially when we have a democracy and the majority clearly just voted these people in who don't agree with that. And I would like to just end that segment with, I don't know if you saw this, but Lieberman responded with a tweet, a tweet um, to the Haredi um, community, quoting the Rambam. Um, and the quote is, I'll switch to Hebrew for this, uh, It's a pretty harsh statement. Can you explain um, against the community? Um, if we translate that real quick, it's a direct quote from the Rambam saying, anyone who would think to themselves to learn Torah and not do um, work or make money from tzedakah instead of going out and working, that that person was lechalel Hashem. He embarrassed the Torah and himself. He dimmed the light of the religion and he did damage to himself as well as took from his own olam haba. So even on a faith-based argument, not so simple. I mean, so that's a good point. I'm just not sure that though those same ultra-Orthodox ultra people really support the view of the Rambam in their halakhic decisions. Fortunately for most of us, they're not in government, and what they think does not matter. 
<laughs> and I guess we'll end that segment with that point. And now we will move on to the game show. I'll remind you the rules of the game show. Benjamin will, giving, will be giving us various quotes and a multiple answer options of different political figures. And Yitzi and I will have to compete and guess which one said it. As uh, some of you may remember from the last game show, I lost tragically, and I think I got not one single answer right, so I hope I do better this week. Benjamin, start what, us what off. Do, what do I win? Wait, what do I win? Oh, what do I win? That's a good Ultimate question. glory. U ultimate glory. Maybe to come back for a second that. interview. Or, or as last night I was an event, you can, you'll can win a free weekend. That's a the free end. weekend. Just f a free weekend. Nothing just more. The existence you, of are, the you, are you offering yes. to babysit? No, it's just, off oh, that's actually a good point. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not offering to babysit. Please, let's start. <laughs> Okay, um, our first quote, um, I'll say the quotes in Hebrew and then translate them quickly. Uh, in this state, the justice will be the ultimate ruler, ruler over its rulers and its citizens. Your options are A. Menachem Begin B. David Ben-Gurion C. Yitzchak Shamir or D. Golda Meir Oh God! What are your uh, What are your guesses? Okay, I don't think it's Begin. I don't think it's Shamil. That leaves the Ben Gurion and Golda Meir. Hey Yitzi, you better not be searching that on your phone over there. No, I'm Facebooking. <laughs> um, Golda Meir or Ben Gurion? That's my other options. Yes. I'm gonna say Golda Meir. I'm gonna say Shamir. Okay, the answer is Menachem Begin, oh, right wow. after the um, uh, announcement right. of the country. I mean, Begin was the Begin was the obvious one. It was the most, it was the most appropriate to his agenda. But I thought it was too obvious. Yeah. Okay, um, so zero zero. Yeah. Ben Gurion definitely didn't say that. <laughs> Might have said it. Didn't believe it. Okay, yeah. next one. Lo harabanim ikveu. The rabbis will not decide. Option one. Yitzhi Marcus. <laughs> Option one, Matan Kahana, a member of Yamina. Option two, Ben Gurion. Option three, Aryeh Deri, um, from the Haredi parties. Option four, Aharon Barak. Okay, I'll run through them. I don't think it was Ben Gurion because I don't think that there was much of a, I don't think it was as much as a, of an issue then back then. Um, and I think that rabbis were looked upon a lot more positively when the government. I mean, they had their other issues, but in general, they were more po positive figures. Um, I would say, it's, I don't think it's Arya Derry, because that would be weird if he would say against his own rabbis, but I'm going to end up being wrong again. Um, and the fourth option you had there, I don't remember the third one, I'm going to say it's Matan Kahana. I actually want to say that this recently was told right now with his whole uh, issue. Now, he, for who knows who Matan Kahana is, he's the minister of religion. Um, and, I, and I think it actually is a recent quote. Yes? Yeah, I would also agree that it's Matan Kahana. God, you guys suck at this game. <laughs> It's Ben Gurion. Um, what? Uh, it was Ben Gurion when asked the question on uh, debating on the law, who is considered a Jew and who is not, and he mm. stated that the rabbis have no voice in this matter. Very interesting. All right. Okay. Okay. Next one. This one should be a little easier. Okay. Din Nitzarim kedin Tel Aviv. The same thing will happen to Nitzarim, a city down south, that will happen to Tel Aviv. Your options are A. Naftali Bennett, the current Prime Minister B. Benjamin Netanyahu C. Ariel Sharon or D. Ehud Barak 
I want to say that all of them said that. I feel I'm like both sure Peter and Bennett said it. Um, oh shoot, I, want I think Sharon said it. I want to say Sharon just said we're equal because still now we're zero zero. So at least no, it was a uh, Sharon. It was about the. It was about the Netcoot. Oh, maybe because Serene was there. Okay, what is your mm-hmm. votes? Okay, so it's either. So I won't say that. So at least we'll have a different thing. I'm gonna go with uh, Naftali Bennett. Okay, this is how you lose the game. <laughs> Yes, it's like against Sharon once okay. again. One zero, Itzi. Next. <laughs> okay, our final quote. Peres yechalek et Yerushalayim. Peres will divide Jerusalem. Okay, your options are Naftali Bennett, Yitzchak Rabin, Benjamin Netanyahu, and Ariel Sharon. Benjamin Netanyahu. Yeah, I would say Netanyahu. Yep, I think they were competing. I wasn't sure if it was him or Yitzhak Shamir, but I think I just saw a video about this not long ago that this was something that they were competing. Okay, but Yitzhak Shamir wasn't an option, so you're pretty good. That's what I'm saying, so I'm saying, we do mean Netanyahu. Okay, yes, Benjamin Netanyahu is the correct answer. First correct answer to this game. Which leads us to a 2-1 victory for Yitzhi. Okay, well done. Thank you very much, Yitzhi. You win a free weekend. Um, Okay. So that really concludes uh, our game show and concludes this episode. We thank you very much for joining us. We thank you for listening. We hope you join us in the, in the future episodes to come. We remind you to follow us on Twitter and email us at our email, hwga.pod at gmail.com. Please share us and subscribe on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts. Thank you for joining. This is Here We Go Again. <laughs>